Well, as we move through uh, the book of 1 Timothy, you can turn there now. If you ha- need a Bible, we have some volunteers with uh, Bibles. You can uh, raise your hands and we'll bring one to you. We want you to be there. 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. As you find your way to 1 Timothy, we're going to be toward the end of chapter 3. Reminded that Paul, in large part, is writing this letter to bring order to the church. Now, those of you who are married, I think we'll get this uh, in a special way. Or those of you who grew up with a sibling that you had to share your room with. And one of you was neat, and one of you is a little sloppy. And you understand that where one sibling is constantly barking about cleaning up and the other one doesn't get why it's such a big deal, or one spouse puts everything away and then the other spouse undoes it all, or something like that. And you have personality mismatches sometimes, and not that necessarily one is right or one is wrong, it's that some of us are just a little bit more bent toward everything being clean, and some of us are a little more bent toward just not thinking in in those terms. Uh, But wherever you are on that spectrum, let's say on one side, maybe you'd be labeled OCD, all right? You're just obsessive and compulsive about things being in a certain place. Maybe you even, you know, carry hand sanitizer around with you. Maybe you have to touch the knob three times before you open the door and it just starts getting into weird territory. Uh, Maybe that's the end of the spectrum. And maybe you're on this other end of the spectrum where... Let's just not even go there, okay? You just, you need a bath or something, all right? Uh, you may not be in one of those extremes, but you probably lean one way or the other. But wherever you are, you can't just have no order in your life and chalk it up to, I'm of that personality. I'm a messy personality, so I'm not really concerned with order. If you have any responsibilities in your life at all, You need some order in your life. You can't just get up at whatever time. Where do you have to be? When do you have to be there? Uh, Is it traffic-y on your way there? Does that change the time you need to leave? If the time you need to leave changes, does that mean you have to get up at a certain time? If you have to get up at a certain time, what time do you need to go to bed? And so at some point, kids, you're going to move past that point of going to bed and getting up with regard to when your parents are telling to, and you're going to have to start making decisions. What, what time do I need to go to bed so that I can pay attention in that college class tomorrow? Or so that I can make it to that job on time? You have responsibilities, and when you have responsibilities, you need order in your life. You may not be as ordered as some others, but you need, you need to administrate your life on some level. There needs to be some order. And that's also true for the church. You've got people in church that want everything buttoned down. If it were up to them, the constitution of the church would be 800 pages long. A process for everything. Everything spelled out. Footnotes. And then go over it with a fine-tooth comb and make sure that there's, there's a process and reasoning and explanation for every single thing that a church does. And then there are others that are like, I don't remember the last time I looked at the constitution. <laughs> do we do that? I don't remember. It just, let's just go week to week. Let's just kind of wing it. You know? And it's like, well, we can't wing everything. Um, And so we want to strike a balance, but the reason why we need some order is because the church has responsibility. Same reasoning for any person. You have responsibility, order is necessary. And so uh, Paul is writing Timothy to put order into the church, 
And the reason why he wants order in the church is because the church is responsible for something. And if we miss what we're responsible for, we won't miss the value of the order. Just like the teenager that doesn't have a bedtime, doesn't have a wake-up time, and doesn't clean their room because why? But when responsibilities kick in, they're going to have to grow up quick. And Paul wants the church in Ephesus to grow up a little bit faster. They've got some whack teaching going on. They don't have necessarily fully qualified elders. Maybe they don't have deacons yet. Who should be a deacon? Uh, What should we be focused on as a church? What should be paramount of paramount importance? And so he writes this letter because he can't come to them and give it to them in person. Well, thank God he wasn't able to come to them and give it to them in person because he gave them a letter, and now we benefit from this letter so that we can bring order to our church and understand the responsibilities we have as a church as a result of this ancient letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy. So if you'll see it in chapter 3, he walks through elder qualifications, then deacon qualifications. If you are with us the past couple weeks and you're like, oh boy, all these qualifications, not super practical. Yes, it is. You want a healthy church? You want an ordered church to be a part of? We need stuff like this. Every sermon can't be three things to do when you go home. Sometimes we just need to understand what makes an orderly church. But then he rounds off the chapter by helping Timothy understand why he's writing this, reminding him in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. There it is. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I want behavior to look a certain way in the church. You cannot do church any old way. You can't do church flippantly, however you want. I'm a little taken aback sometimes when somebody comes out with a new book or some mega church pastor who's using his fame to to launch a new way of doing church. Brother, if it's a new way, we probably shouldn't be doing it. There's a way to do church, and that way is prescribed in the New Testament, and we catch a lot of that in this letter from Paul to Timothy. Because he's not able to come to him as soon as he can, and provides this almost sort of a manual to follow because he wants people to conduct themselves in a certain way in the church. And it's not just individual behavior like, hey, be kind, be gentle. Yeah, that's true, but he's talking about how to do church. Like, well, who's going to lead this thing? Overseers. Well, what, they should, what should they be like? Who's, who gets to be an overseer? Well, qualifications. Well, the overseers are really busy. Should overseers be having meetings and just talking about everything? No, people should be helping the overseers. Well, who can do that? How about deacons? What do deacons look like? Like this. What do their wives look like? Like that. I mean, it's helpful stuff. To order the church. So it's beyond just individual membership, members' behavior, but how do we do things together as a church? And I think a lot of us don't think enough about that. We come to church and we want individual behavior instructions. Just tell me how to be a better dad, tell me how to be a better husband, a better student, and make it applicable to me. Uh, And we're not thinking necessarily in terms of how does this apply to the body, like a whole family. So this letter is like a family gathering, and he's helping Timothy say, hey, help the family understand that this is how you walk together. This is how you do life together. And if you wonder where I got that family image from, he says it right there. He says, if I delay, you need to know how the church ought to behave What is the church? It is the household of God. And by household, he doesn't mean the structure or the building. He means the people in it. That's the same word he used when he 
talked about the elder qualifications. And he said one of the qualifications for an elder is that they need to be able to manage their household well. He doesn't mean know how to fix the toilets. He doesn't mean that he has to be able to keep the house together, make sure the plumbing is working, make sure that cracks are sealed. I mean, not that that stuff's unimportant, but that's not an elder qualification. He needs to be able to manage the people that live in the house well, manage them well. Why? Well, how is he going to manage order in the church household if he can't manage order in the family household that he has at home? And so it's the same word and it's the same concept. He gives it to the deacons. Even a deacon, if a deacon is going to help structure the church, help run the church, and have delegated authority in the church, a deacon should be able to manage their household. If they have a family, they need to be able to manage that family because if they have an out-of-control household at home, they're not going to be able to help us keep things orderly in church. So the concept is the same, but he's reminding Timothy, hey, this is church is more familial and more personal than you might be taking it. Oftentimes we scroll through Google and try to find the church and we look at location, we look at service time, we look at programs, we look at what they have to offer me. How many of us really are searching for a family? Like what what is a family that can adopt me? What is a family I can be a part of, where I can be a brother, I can be a cousin, I can be a, a daughter, a son, I can be a part of this organic family? Normally not. We, we treat it like we treat, you know, which theater am I going to go to? Well, this one has reclining seats. Well, this one has half off the popcorn. You know, it's, it's consumeristic oftentimes when we choose a church. And so we don't want to just think of church as something that's proximally close. I can drive to it without ruining my Sunday. We want to think about church as a people before thinking of church as a place. It is a household. It is a family. I think that's why membership is important. We, we, we love the people that we bring in as members before they become members. It's not like they're chastised and cast aside until you become a member. Now we'll like you. That's not the case. But it's like, are you family or are you kind of like the next door neighbor that likes to hang out and grab some food once in a while? That's the difference. Are you in? Are you part of the family? Because if you're part of the family, you're going to help clean dishes. You know, we're, we're going to honor you in a different way, but you've got responsibilities. You, you have a part to play in this family, and this family depends on you. We talked about some of that at the men's retreat, which was awesome. And so this church is a household of God. It is not a church of fill-in-the-blank. I mean, you've got... Especially when you go travel, you see, you know, you're trying to find a church to, to stay. I mean, on the other end of the spectrum, not to be too consumeristic, but, uh, you know, we were out in Montana. We we're trying to find a church to attend on Sunday, and it's like there's the cowboy church. There's the we're too cool to preach scripture church. You know, just come in your ripped jeans, and we'll just hang out and smoke. I don't know what they're doing over there, you know, like they're ultra cool do whatever culture is doing kind of church, like, no, not interested. I'd rather just have a family devotional uh, back at the, at, at, at the house or whatever. Um, it's not church fill in the blank. There should be some consistency among churches, and sadly, there isn't enough. I'm not talking about chair colors or pews versus chairs or worship style, but there are certain foundational things that belong in every household of God because it's not your household and you don't get to do what you want with it. It's the household of the living God. And so there should be a little lump in our throats when we think about how we do what we do at church. 
It's not that God's going to strike us with lightning bolts. It's that we see this weighty Old Testament God. In fact, that phrase, the living God, is taken from the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament, you read about the living God of Israel who is uh, encamped among his people. And that is happening even more so now as God dwells in his people, not because he's in a building, but because he's in us via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? God takes up residence within his people, and therefore where his people are gathered, that is the household of the living God. This God that is simultaneously wrathful, scary, but does what it takes to invite us into a relationship with him. We shouldn't be with him, but he camps out among us. There's that that tension throughout all the Old Testament, moving toward this time where we have this awesome, magnanimous God who has the grace to invite us into a relationship with him even though we don't deserve it. He makes it happen, but we still, we don't take that flippantly. That is a weighty, heavy truth. And that's what church is. We talked about it a little bit in one of our breakout groups at the men's retreat, how there was a time when church architecture tried to at least communicate that. The long, stark halls, dark, there's no banners, there's no cushy seats. It's like these hard pews that they hewed out of trees, and then the the spires, everything has these pointy windows, and the spires on top of it, everything's pointing up. Like, you come in here to focus up, to focus up, not focus on what I want or what I need, but to focus up on God, these huge cathedrals. And then you fast forward today where it's just like, you know, warehouse and, you know, really elaborate sets and smoke, and I get it. One kind of church wants to communicate the distance of God, and the other kind of church wants to communicate the closeness of God. But sometimes we might go too far where God is just like your buddy. He's like your drinking buddy at work, and he wears a hard hat, and he sits around with you, and we just talk about your day and how is it. But God is a friend to you. But but he's not a drinking pal. I think we can think about the weightiness of God a little bit, not his distance, but the distance that would be had he not done something about it. That's important to keep in mind. We are a family, but we are adopted into a family where God is the head, God is over it, it is his. And so we don't get to do church of fill in the blank. It needs to be church of the living God. And what does God want of his church? What is the responsibility of the church? Why do we have to have order in the church? Because it belongs to him, yes, but it belongs to him, and what he wants with it is a particular responsibility, which is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Some of you are like, what is a buttress? Uh, What is he saying up there? (laughs) If you go into one of those old cathedrals and you see that there's not pillars everywhere, somehow this huge thing is just sitting on the exterior walls, but it's just not sitting on the exterior walls. You see these buttresses, right? These curved arches that hold up the ceiling from the walls. It holds up all these spires uh, by the buttresses. Or other places you will see pillars, big fat pillars that are literally just straight holding up everything in the building. That's interesting, right? Because you read like Ephesians 2 and places like that where Paul says, well, the church is founded on the teaching of the apostles. Isn't the church founded on the truth? Isn't the truth the foundation and the church is built on top of it? And then here Paul is saying, no, the church is the foundation and the truth is on top of it. Well, which one is it? Well, both, I think. I mean, of course, the church is built on the truth. If we don't have truth, what are we doing here? 
right? What, what should I say up here? Whatever I feel like, whatever I dreamt last night, there needs to be some objective reality that we can all gather around and say, this is truth, not your feelings and my feelings, but there's some truth here. Not that feelings don't count, but we need to wrap our feelings and our hearts and minds around something that's exterior to ourselves. We don't make up the truth. The truth is out there, and we come to it. We were brought to it. So yes, the church is founded on the truth, but what Paul is getting at here is the responsibility of the church to uphold the truth, to protect the truth, to proclaim the truth. And if we're not careful, any church can slip into a mode where we're upholding something else. We're expending our energy doing something else that's beside truth. We assume the truth. We belittle the truth. We say, well, truth, yeah, sure, truth you, truth me. You know, what are we going to say? Other churches don't have the truth, and so truth is kind of just subjective, so whatever. But what we're going to really focus on is, and then fill in the blank again. But what he wants is a church Telling Timothy, I want the church in Ephesus, just like any church that is a church or household, a family of the living God, to be a pillar that upholds this truth rather than dropping it. Do not drop the truth. Proclaim it, uphold it, protect it, center your lives on it. This is what church is for. It's to uphold this truth to the world and those who come in. We say, hey, we love you, whatever your background But we're about the truth here because we serve this living God that decides what a church is for and what we're supposed to do as a household. So what is that truth? Well, here's where some of us, maybe uh, everything is a cardinal truth. You know, every single thing you can think of is a cardinal truth. It's a weighty truth. Everything is a hill to die on. I don't think that's, this letter is rather short. I mean, it's, it's not the longest book in the Bible. He doesn't go on and on about what programs you should do, how you should handle kids, how, what, should you do small groups, should you do Sunday school, how many elders should you have, how many deacons should you have, how long does somebody have to be tested or proven before they become a deacon, what exactly do you mean by dignified, what do you mean well thought of by outsiders, who are the outsiders, how many outsiders, how do we find out what the outsiders think, do we take a survey, do we take a poll? Everything isn't written in stone. Everything isn't a doctrinal, cardinal truth. There's room for churches to figure some of this stuff out. But that doesn't mean there are no cardinal truths. That doesn't mean there is nothing written in concrete. That doesn't mean we can just make up whatever we want. There's freedom in some areas, and then there's some concrete realities in other areas. So what does he want us to focus on? Well, the center of it, The core of it is this mystery of godliness. Verse 16, he goes right into what that truth is that he wants to focus on. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is that? He gives it to us in this poem, hymn, creed. It's rhymey when you read it in the Greek, so most scholars think that he's taking this from somewhere. It's either a song or a creed or a poem that... Maybe the readers are familiar with, Christians are already using it, perhaps he wrote it, perhaps he grabbed it from somewhere. It doesn't matter. Once he penned it in this letter, it became scripture, and it's inspired, and it captures what he means by the mystery of godliness, what he means as that core center of truth that churches are to center on. He says, uh, he was manifested in the flesh. Who? Come on now. Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's your center. Your center is not a what, your center is a who. And your center is centered on what that person did and what that person accomplished and what happened with that person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he says this mystery is great. Why is it a mystery? I think it's a, 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 I mean, it's a common term that Paul uses, and he uses it of the gospel. Why is the gospel mysterious? Because as you read through the Bible, you can read through the Bible like chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. I wonder sometimes that's why we don't make it to the end. <laughs> I'm going to read the Bible in a year or two years, and we kind of don't make it to the end because you've got all these pieces that are disconnected. It's hard to make sense of them. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, where all the laws and the priest had to wear this, and the, the, the tabernacle had to be these measurements. What is going on? But if you see the entire Bible as a mystery that is unfolding, you see how things are connected. So ever since the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, male and female. He created them to image him, right? They fell, they sinned. They don't image him. They image themselves. Now they're broken. Now they're fallen. Now they're astray. What does God do? He promises that he'll send one from her seed to conquer the one that deceived them. Well, that's a promise. Who's it going to be? Abel? Oops, it wasn't Abel. Is it Abraham? Oh, it's not Abraham. Oh, he promises Abraham a special seed. Oh, maybe that'll be it. And as you move through the story of Abraham, you see that Abraham sees it. There's this promise. I'm going to have this son, even though I'm physically, we're physically incapable of having a child, of having a son, God promises going to be a son. And then he tries to take it in his own hands. I guess it's not happening with her. How about I sleep with her? And that just messes things up, and God brings them back like, hey, man, just stick to the promise. Yeah, but the promise is taking too long, and we've got to get involved. No, you can't get involved. You cannot produce the promise on your own. This is not a covenant of works. This is a covenant of grace. I'm going to do it. Hey, the king is going to take her from my wife, and if the king takes her from my, as his wife, then they're going to start having babies, and then what happens to the baby that I'm promised? Just tell him you're my sister. Stop it, God says, right? So as you're following this story, what you're seeing is there's this seed promise, and Abraham doesn't know how to believe the seed promise. He doesn't know what to do with the seed promise. And God keeps adjusting it and saying, no, you just trust me for the seed. You move to a book like Judges, and they're sinning all over the place. They're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. What does the author tell us? The reason why they're just sinning with no constraints is because they have no king. And they're cycle after cycle after cycle. They just keep getting worse. To the point where some of the stuff, when I, we preach through Judges, some people are like, I can't believe you preached that passage. I'm like, I know, but it's there. It's, it's dark, it's gritty, it's nasty, but it, why is it in the Bible? Because the author keeps telling us, this is what happens when you don't have a king. Oh, might that king be the promised seed? Yes. Then you get to 1 Samuel, they ask for a king, the kings start. You get to 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you're like, is this the king? Is this the king? Is this the king? Some of them were good. Some of them were really bad. But even the good ones weren't perfect. And you see this lineage of kingship. What is happening? Why is this in the Bible? Because it's cool history? No. It's leading toward that promised seed that we now know is going to be a king, is going to rule. We now know this king is how we're ever going to behave as a people. And presses on into the New Testament. Who is this king? Who is this seed? And then, bang, you get Christmas. 
Why is the Bible a mystery? Why is the gospel a mystery revealed? Because the prophets long to find out who is this person? Who is this one that's going to culminate, that everything is going to culminate in? It's going to be the climax of all of the Bible, of all of the prophecies, of all the revelation that God has given us. Who is this one that's going to rescue us from our problem of being unable to really worship God? As hard as we try, somebody's got to solve this. We cannot get ourselves to heaven. How are we going to get there? Jesus is the answer. So the Bible is this unfolding mystery, and it is a great one. It is everything. So we confess this mystery of godliness. How do I become godly? I can't do it myself. Jesus solves it. That's why it's the mystery of godliness. It affects how we behave and how we live. And it runs down a line of uh, accomplishments by this person to accomplish godliness for us. He was manifested in the flesh. That means he became one of us. Why? Because the first Adam failed and got us into this mess. The only way to get out of this mess is to provide a second Adam to get us out. And a second Adam has to be man. He has to be flesh. Man has to do what man can't do. But man has to do it. But we can't do it. So how is it going to happen? God was like, I'll do it myself. And he took on flesh, real flesh. It's not like a hologram. He became actual man to be that head representative, just like the first Adam was. So that just like the first Adam failed and made all of us fail, the second Adam can succeed and make all of us succeed. So he became flesh, and that means that when he was in his flesh, he had to take death for us because that's what we deserve. We deserve death, but he rose again when he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does vindicated mean? When you're cleared of all charges, you've been vindicated. Is this, is this the one? Is this the king we expected? He said he was, but then he got killed. Yeah, but when he was risen from the dead by the Holy Spirit, that vindicated it, didn't it? Is this really the one that we were supposed to be waiting for? Yes. How do you know? Because he didn't stay dead. That's how you know. If he had stayed dead, he wouldn't have taken death for us. He would have just stayed dead with us. But he conquered it to take that sting of death. So we can say, yeah, where's your victory? Christ has the victory and brings us from death to life. He was seen by the angels. Which angels? All of them. The ones at the tomb, the ones watching from heaven, even the fallen ones that are the spirits in prison, First Peter 3 tells us. And Jesus is raised by the Holy Spirit and proclaims it even to the spirits in prison. I win. That is awesome. So that promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in his resurrection. How does he defeat? The serpent bruises his heel, but he crushes the head of the serpent. The bruise is his death, and him crushing the serpent is his resurrection. I win. I win. I win my people to myself. They can't be godly. I'm going to make them godly. Man. This is the truth that's proclaimed among the nations. We're not proclaiming a religion. You can, pick, you can take your pick, but we just think the Christianity one is cool. Do you want victory? Do you want to conquer death? Do you want eternity? Do you want godliness? The way to do it is the one who solves the mystery for all of mankind. So it's proclaimed among the nations, and it's believed on in the world. And he's taken up in glory. Really quickly, why does it say he's taken up in glory? That feels like it's kind of out of order. He died, he rose again, then he was taken up in glory, and then he was preached, right? But here Paul is saying he died, he was resurrected, He was preached to all the world, 
And then he was taken up in glory. Well, why is he putting that at the end? We don't know for sure. It doesn't have to be perfectly chronological, but I think, and I got this suggestion from John Stott's commentary, actually. I think it's a good point. I think what he's doing there is he's saving that ascension, Jesus going up in glory. He's saving it for the end because what are we longing for right now? For, for his return from glory, right? And so he wants to end the poem. He wants to end that stanza on our eyes still looking up. And going, he was taken up in glory. He's going to come back. He's going to get us. He's going to get us and finish this journey for us. That is an amazing promise. So, are there other truths? Yes. That's why the whole Bible isn't just 1 Timothy. We have other truths, right? Right? Okay? There are more truths than just this little poem. We don't want to say, all we do is this poem and there's, there's nothing else. Well, even outside of this poem, there's elder qualifications. That's not in the poem. Right? There's deacon qualifications. You don't get to just pick any deacon, but that's not in the poem. But what he's saying here is this poem is like the center, it's the hub, and then all the other truths we get from Scripture are spokes in the wheel. They, they come from, why does an elder need to behave a certain way? Well, he's supposed to emulate Christ. It's Christ's household. Christ has to manage the household, so get a guy that manages his house like Christ wants to manage the church. And so it, it flows from that spoke. It's not irrelevant to it. And so all the things that we have in Scripture center on this hub of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he accomplishes for us. That's the core. And then the other things that really matter, that really count, that we have to be really clear on, they're connected to that hub. They're, they're on that wheel. Not everything is on that wheel. Some things are just good wisdom. Some things are preferences. Some things are personal convictions. But other things are biblical standards for a church but those standards emanate from this core truth, and it is our job as a church to proclaim this truth, uphold this truth, protect this truth, and keep our church buttressing and upholding this core truth. Well, how do you determine the difference between negotiables and non-negotiables? If a church's responsibility is to lead our lives and to live our lives around the gospel, centered on the gospel, I want to reiterate that there is freedom in some things that are not tethered directly to the gospel. It's not totally clear in Scripture. It's not been inscripturated for us. We don't have an inspired word that tells us to do it, but it's a matter of wisdom, and we need to have freedom in those things. Should you, have, should you do Sunday school or should you do small groups? How about both? I don't know. So why should we pick one way or the other of getting around God's word? Let's just do it. Do we have bandwidth to do it? Let's do it. Right, should we do door-to-door -door evangelism? Or should we do relationship evangelism? Pick one. Can you just evangelize? Right? What Scripture says is proclaim. We don't need a bicker about how to proclaim. Just go out there. Go out there and do it. And so these are things where there's freedom between them to decide, okay, we know what we're supposed to do, how we do it. There's some freedom there. Fast songs, slow songs, old songs, new songs, whatever. Can the lyrics match Scripture? Can we just proclaim Scripture, whether it's fast or slow? I mean, and then other things are a matter of wisdom. Well, this is so fast that our, half our congregation can't sing it. Where we can't follow the bouncing ball. Well, then maybe we shouldn't sing that, even if it's doctrinally true. But that's a matter of wisdom. That's a matter of expediency. We, we figure these things out, but it's not because... God's law says you have to sing old songs or whatever. 
So we want to recognize freedom in there, but we also want to recognize constraint in some things. Should we preach? I mean, there's churches asking that question. Should we preach, or should we just have like a dialogue with people as they come in? Somebody sometime, at some point, has got to stand up and say what the truth is. And so if a preacher wants to do some Q&A, some give and take, I get it. But at some point, there has to be some propositional truth. A standard needs to be put forth. This is what we buttress, this right here. And then these other things, these are outflowing, these are suggestions, these are possible applications or whatever, but some things are clear in Scripture, and they need to be presented. And so we don't create our doctrinal statement based on surveys. It's based on Scripture. I think you can apply this personally. What are the truth non-negotiables in your life? Now you, can, you, can, you can, like, how do you center your life on the Word? Do you do quiet times? Do you do a devotional? Do you, pray, do you read the Bible in the morning? Is it at night? How long? How big? Do you read through the Bible? Do you pick verses as you go? What if you just do one verse? Is that not spiritual enough? I almost want to say, hey, I don't really care. Can you just read the Bible? <laughs> If you're reading the Bible, that's great. And then you'll figure out. Sometimes you're going to read through more of it. Sometimes one verse just hits you square between the eyes, and you want to sit there and read it over and over, or memorize it, ingest it, understand it, investigate other people's writings to try to unpack it a little bit. And other times you're like, I don't want to stay stuck in one verse for six months. I want to kind of read through and get what's going on. I want to see this unfolding mystery. Yes, 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 and yes. But the core non-negotiable truth should be that we are to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. What does that mean? One time in the day, one time in the night? Already you're floating into personal convictions about it. But can you look on your life and your schedule and go, man, I meditate on God's law. I meditate on his law day and night. It's frequent. It's often. I saturate myself in it. I do it all the time. That's a non-negotiable truth. What does your prayer life look like? What does the Bible say about involvement in church? The Bible doesn't say you must do A, B, and C, but the Bible does talk about spiritual gifts. And what's the point of a spiritual gift if you're not supposed to use it? And you're not supposed to use a spiritual gift for your own benefit. You're supposed to use your spiritual gift for other people's benefit. So how are you benefiting the body? Even as a pastor, we can go to lunch or breakfast or coffee, and we can talk about involvement, But I don't have a word from the Lord saying, you must be on this ministry team. You must start this ministry. You've got to discover that, and there's freedom there. But the one thing I can say is, if you're not really serving in a particular way that benefits other people spiritually, there is a standard here that's not showing up in your life. We can figure out what that is and what that looks like, and we don't want to be nitpicky. Like, no, it has to be, you know, this upper echelon thing that you're doing. That doesn't count. That's too small of a ministry. No, no, no. There's freedom there. We just say, what are you doing in the church that you're benefiting the other members of the household rather than everyone else running around and doing chores and then you just jump on the couch and play Game Boy? That, that, that's, that's breaking the standard. The people involvement, we're going to be involved at different levels. Some people are going to be able to do things in the church that other people are unable to do or maybe unable to at this time and they can grow into it. Small things are great things, but we want involvement because Scripture calls for it in the household. You can keep going. You can think of ways in which the Holy Spirit has been convicting you. And I don't mean the Spirit's convicting you because you had a dream 
or because you felt a weird fuzzy and you thought maybe I should do that. You saw a scripture verse that described a Christian reality, and that is not a reality in your life. That's where conviction should come from. But maybe you've just kind of let it, let it go. Like you just put it, stuff it in the corner. Maybe it's a difficult thing. But God wants a household that's orderly, and he gives instructions so that we can do life together. And I guarantee you that thing you're struggling with, is, it's not the first time. There are other people here who have struggled with it, do struggle with it, will struggle with it. And so we need the householdness of each other, right? The one another's uh, of Scripture so that we can bear one another up in this race and strive to be the family that God wants us to be. I'm thankful this is a church that is less concerned with being cool and hip and more concerned with Scripture. But uh, every household has areas to grow in. And we want to make sure we take up those challenges by going, okay, God, what is core? What is central? What's tethered to the center that Scripture makes clear? And let's do that. Let's do that to the best of our ability. One of those things is spending meaningful, meaningful time in fellowship so we don't just have meals because it's that time of the month and we got to eat. We want to eat together because I want to see your face, right? Uh, I want to say hi. And I mean, I get to each of you. And each of you won't get to the each of the others, but... Uh, you want to you uh, mingle with a purpose, and that purpose is our middle name as a church. We are a Christian fellowship church. That is koinonia. That is one of the core uh, attributes of what a household is, is that we, we fellowship together and we don't always just run our separate ways for lunch, right? So just one of those practical things. Does the Bible say, have a potluck? No, the Bible says fellowship. Well, what's, what's one way that we can try to do that? Well, a potluck. Right, So that we're trying to honor what Scripture says. And so let's, let's go to the meal together today uh, with an intention of loving on each other and hearing each other's stories and hearing about each other's weeks and um, learning one another so that we can serve one another. Um, let's pray.